Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's first reading comes from the book of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with the awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Today's second reading comes from Second Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Morning, everyone. A little caveat here. I'm on the tail end of some sickness, and during the Nicene Creed, I just choked on my cough drop. In a big way. So if I get a little bit choked up, it's mostly cough drop, not any of our content this morning. We're in the final week of our membership sermon series. And if you've been with us in the previous weeks, we've been talking about things like what is the church? What does it mean to belong to the church? The church is an institution of formation. What does it mean to be at an Anglican church? And maybe that has been helpful categories for you or clarifying definitions But perhaps at this point in the sermon series, you still find yourself thinking, okay, what will we actually do here? What does it mean for me to be a member here? How will I practice these things? Or maybe to take a step back from membership specifically, you might be asking yourself the question, if Cornerstone is a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, where does the shaping come in? How should I expect to be formed into a disciple through my participation in the life of this church. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning is what does it mean for me to be shaped through my participation here? What are the means, the mediums, the mechanisms that this church has for forming Christ in me? And I thought a good way for us to answer that question this morning would be to spend some time reflecting on a verse that is very core to Cornerstone's identity, that's John 15, five. This is a verse I'm sure all of us in the room know, but especially if you've been around Cornerstone for any length of time, you've heard us talk about this verse. In it, Jesus talking to his disciples says, 
I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And again, this is probably a really familiar verse. When I read this verse at first blush, the thing that jumps to my mind is that abiding can feel kind of like vague language. What does it mean for me to abide in Jesus? And generally, the thing that I'm drawn towards is thinking it means believing in Jesus, that I can rest in him through a belief in who he is, what he's accomplished on my behalf, and that will produce something in me. And I think that's a right way of understanding this verse. There are some seasons of the Christian life, especially where sometimes that's all I can hope to do, is continue to cling to the hope that I have in Jesus, hoping that he will produce something in me because I don't feel very capable of producing it myself. Maybe that feels like your reading of this verse. But I actually don't know that that was Jesus' primary intention for how we understand these words. And in order for us to think a little bit about that, I would like to draw an, a metaphor from a book called The Trellis and the Vine. So The Trellis and the Vine was a book that enjoyed some popularity a few years ago. It came out in 2009, and I like this book for a few reasons. One reason why I like this book is towards the end, they had this appendix that says, here's a case study to test how effective the discipleship ministry of your church is. We want you to pretend that a global pandemic has broken out and that your church has to cease all normal operations. How does your small group ministry continue? In 2009, they published this book. They actually published a follow-up edition a couple years ago that basically just said, see, we told you so. <laughs> How'd it go for you? The other reason I like this book is the whole book is basically the title, The Trellis and the Vine, which is a real time saver. So what they put forward is in John 15, Jesus, when he's saying, I am the vine, you are the branches, as you abide in me, the thing that would have come into the mind of a first century hearer is a trellis, is this lattice work that a grape can grow on. It, all of us are a little bit more removed from an agrarian setting, so maybe we think about it as a little bit more passive, but to Jesus' original hearers, they would have heard trellis. We need some sort of support system. And what the trellis and the vine goes on to unpack was a buzzword in ministry at the time. Everything was about being organic. We wanna make organic disciples. We wanna have organic fruit. We wanna see organic growth. And organic is great, but the authors were at pains to show we have often misunderstood or misapplied that word organic, especially in discipleship contexts. So sometimes what we've done is we've kind of taken the opposite end of the spectrum maybe, GMO discipleship, if such a thing exists, which if it does, please keep it far away from me. But if GMO is the idea that I'm kind of intervening in the natural processes, and I'm producing this unnatural, perhaps unhealthy end product, we go the opposite direction and we say, okay, well, I don't want that to be my spiritual life in God, so I'm just going to do nothing. I'm just going to abide. I'm just going to remain attached to Jesus and see what he does in me. But the authors say that's actually not what organic means in the context of growing plants. Anybody who's ever tried to keep a garden can tell you that is not a very effective way to organically garden. See, what organic actually refers to is creating an environment that allows natural processes to take place. Organic growth in the context of a grapevine is actually providing a structure 
providing a trellis, something that this vine can climb so that the natural processes that God has designed can take shape, can take form. If a grapevine is left to grow along the ground, it produces small, pitiful, bitter fruit. No one wants to taste that fruit. It needs something that allows it to have the structure that God has given it enabled. And so for the disciples, in hearing Jesus' words about abiding in him, the question for them was not, will there be a trellis? But what will it look like? What will it look like for me to structure my faith in a way that the organic processes of the Spirit in me can be enabled in order that I might bear fruit? And again, maybe this feels odd to us because it might sound to you like what I'm putting forward is some sort of legalism or some sort of works-based righteousness that we would earn our salvation, and that is not what I'm trying to say. No part of what I'm putting forward here by talking about a trellis is meant to communicate you must earn your salvation. Instead, what I'm trying to say is we're meant to participate in the ordering of our faith in order that we would bear fruit. Dallas Willard spoke about this very helpfully. He said this, he said, salvation is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. And I think it's that last sentence that is especially operative when we're thinking about this tension. We often think about grace at the moment of salvation. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, at justification. But what Willard is putting forward is actually it's the entirety of the Christian life that is enabled through grace, including the actions that we take in order to see fruit born in our lives. And the Bible regularly acknowledges the tension between these two things, between belief in Jesus and the practices that we are asked to engage in. And this was our two texts for this morning focusing on these things, this relationship between authentic faith and the fruit that we bear. So in our first text, Acts 2, Luke is offering for us kind of a summary statement of the early church. He's giving us a snapshot of what their life looked like. And let's look back at this. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, which, as a quick aside here, pretty normal, ordinary things that the disciples are devoting themselves to with some pretty supernatural results as the Spirit works among them. He goes on and he says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I want you to see two things are present in this passage. One is that the Lord is clearly cited as the cause of those who are being added to their number. This is salvation by grace through faith. God is the primary actor in salvation, and yet the thing that characterizes the believer's behavior in the life of the early church is that they devoted themselves to something. They devoted themselves to a common life, a pattern of being, sharing meals around a table, opening up the Bible together, spending time in each other's homes, singing songs of worship together. Their life was oriented around a certain shape, and these two things coexist together. Or we could look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Oh, I see. Here's a slide that says what I just said. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life 
through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, which if we could just pause there, that is one of the most potent, loaded, heavy, mysterious sentences in the entirety of Scripture. We've been given these promises so that we may, may participate in the divine nature. It's Peter's way of saying Jesus has become a man that you might participate in the divine life. He goes on and he says, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So what Peter's putting forward here is that we have, in Jesus, begun participating in the very life of God. And I don't know where your mind goes in terms of Peter introducing this very deep, very heavy thing. I would anticipate the next thing that he says to be something like, therefore, praise God for what he's done. Or therefore, rest in what has been done for you in Jesus. But that's actually not the direction he goes. He says in verse 5, for this very reason, for the reason that you've been brought into the divine life, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And then he goes on and he gives this list of things that we ought to be increasing in. So Peter says, because you have been brought into a new life in Christ, add to it. Increase your faith. Supplement what God is doing in you. Create a structure around it so that the organic can grow. He continues on and he says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which, it's a sad reality. I know in my life, I imagine in many of our lives, more often than I would like to admit, the twin descriptors of ineffective and unproductive, or unfruitful is another way we could translate that, characterize my life in God more than I would like to be the case. Does that feel like it's the case for you? That at times it feels like I'm not producing anything. This isn't affecting anything in me. And really what Peter's descriptor here is nodding at is a vine running along the ground with no trellis to climb. It's ineffective. It's unfruitful. It can't produce anything. It doesn't have the structure it needs for those organic processes to take place. Unfruitful is a descriptor of a faith without patterns and rhythms to devote itself to so that God can activate those organic processes that we need to see growth in us. So what I want us to see in opening through this lens of John 15 is that the growth that we want, the organic fruit that we want, it comes from a life oriented around a pattern of being, devoted to a certain set of activities so that the Spirit can act in us. And we can misunderstand that whole principle and we could arrive at a place of legalism. That's not what I'm advocating for this morning. I think it's actually helpful for us to just think back really briefly on Jesus who is teaching against a backdrop of a lot of legalism, right? He's regularly in opposition with the Pharisees who are operating with this legalistic structure and he doesn't let that stop him from prescribing trellises for his followers, Think about when Jesus is instructing his followers on how to pray. He doesn't say, when you pray, just pray whatever pops into your head. No, he says, when you pray, pray like this. And he gives his disciples the actual words to say, words that we still repeat every week when we take the communion meal together. 
Jesus wanted to supply his followers with trellises, with ways of imitating him, with ways of experiencing growth in their faith. And so in response to this, in membership at Cornerstone, we are going to adopt something together called a rule of life. Let me tell you what we mean when we say a rule of life. A rule of life is intentionally arranging life around a series of habits and rhythms that increase your life in God, that by grace, you may bear fruit. And the thing you may be thinking as you see this definition is you may be thinking, did no one give you any branding advice on this? Rule of life. It sounds maybe a little bit oppressive to some of us especially maybe given some certain church context that we may be coming from. So give me a second to tell you why we are calling this a rule of life. Rule, that word comes to us from the Latin word regula, like the word regular. And what rule would be translated as is ruler, not a king, but the stick of measurement that we use. Or in the Latin, actually, the word regula was used to refer to a trellis, the small, thin, straight, guiding piece of wood that a vine would grow alongside in order to produce fruit in its life. And when we're calling this the cornerstone rule of life, we are doing that in one of those ancient paths of Christianity kind of ways. You guys have heard John talk about this before. Ancient paths meaning we are not inventing Christian practice here. If we're inventing things for the first time, please don't do what we are advocating for. Our job is to take the faith that we have inherited, the faith that we have received, and faithfully incarnate it and contextualize it to the places that God has called us. So when we're talking about practicing a rule of life, this is done in deference to an acknowledgement that people for thousands of years before us have practiced a rule. And when I say rule here, I don't want you to hear rules of life, plural, like a series of commandments. I want you to hear rule, the guiding straight piece of wood that gives us something that our faith can grow on. That is what we will be practicing together. And we could have called it something else. We could have called it habits of grace or ways of practicing our deep hopes or any other preferred thing, but what we mean by it is the same thing, that this is a structure by which our faith can grow. If you'll permit me, I would love to share with you how I came across rule of life. So I don't know if this is news to anybody in the room. Uh, some of you may have experienced this, but for many of us, the first year of marriage is hard. Maybe some of you are in the first year of marriage. I can tell you it gets better. For whatever reason, my wife Hannah and I, we did not experience that difficulty in the first year of marriage. I think it was because we dated long distance. And so even when we were fighting with each other, there was this sense of, well, at least I get to see you tomorrow. That's pretty cool. And it was as if... We saved all of that anticipated hard first year of marriage for the first year of being parents. So we got pregnant much earlier in our marriage than we had anticipated, and we had a really difficult transition into parenting. Hannah was suffering from postpartum depression. I was working a job that I hated where I commuted an hour each way, and we had a tiny infant who screamed at us all day long and we did not go get more than four hours of sleep consecutively until she was eight months old. It was brutal. I mean, I look back on that season of life, and I don't know how we made it to the other side, but it ended up being a really stark season for me spiritually. 
It was one of the first times in my life where, in an emotional sense, I felt like God was absent from my life on a daily basis. And I felt like my prayers were not being answered. And not only that, but I found myself living in a way that I did not like. I was angry all the time. I was incapable of experiencing joy. And I remember going to a pastor at the time and seeking some advice, asking, what should I be doing with this? And he said back to me, Max, you know, sometimes when we find ourselves in a place like what you're describing, it may be that we are misbelieving something about God. Is there something that you are incorrectly believing about who God is? And I took that to heart. I spent some time meditating on that, thinking about that. Is there something wrong in my conception of who God is? And this may be a semantics thing, but I got to this place finally where I thought, you know, I don't think I'm believing anything wrong about God. It's, it's not an issue of orthodoxy. It's not like I'm violating the Nicene Creed in what I'm thinking about God. It's that the belief that I have about God that may be correct is stuck in my brain, and I can't work it into the rest of my being in these small moments of my day. So, what would it look like for me to move that belief in the abstract into my being when I need it, when I need to live by it? And I remember it was in asking that question in 2018, I came across this article on the Gospel Coalition called Skip Resolutions, Make a Rule of Life. And something that probably two years prior I would have read and said, that's legalism, I was desperate enough to say, okay, I'll try it. And so I created a rule of life personally something that I could live by, something that ordered my habits and my time, and very slowly I started to experience transformation in my life. The first part of my rule that I created was I set myself, this is so stupid, I set myself a bedtime. I said, no screens after 10 p.m. Because what I was doing was I would wake up early, I would commute to work, work all day, commute back home, try to put an infant down two, three, four, five times, and finally, at the end of my day, I would pull out my phone and I would just scroll. And I would participate in something that some social scientists call revenge bedtime procrastination, which I think is a hysterical <laughs> title. <laughs> revenge bedtime procrastination, but it was this idea of, I feel like every aspect of my day is out of my control. I'm going to seize the one moment that I have and stretch it as long as I possibly can. But what I did when I did that was I sabotaged myself for the next day. And I made myself emotionally unavailable and angry at everyone around me. And so the thing that began my rule of life was just to say, I need a bedtime. No screens after 10 p.m. And very slowly over time, it's not like it worked by magic, but it gave the spirit the room to organically produce fruit in my life. And that's how I began to experience a rule of life, was through personal application. Maybe some of you in the room are familiar with a rule of life through something like John Mark Comer's podcast that he has on it. He also frames it as individual practice, but I think one thing that's significant for us to know is rule of life historically has actually been practiced by communities. It's meant to be something that draws groups of people into a shared life together. The primary way that rule of life began was actually it ordered monastic communities. So if you think about that stereotypical picture of the life of a monk, and there's kind of bells regulating what they're doing at different hours of the day, that's them living by a rule of life, saying, hey, it's time for us to eat, it's time for us to pray, it's time for us to work. And when we're thinking about that, maybe I can ask a question here. How many of y'all worked at a Christian summer camp? 
okay? How many of y'all have ever been on a mission trip? Okay, if you raised your hands for either of those questions, you have lived by a communal rule of life. You just didn't know that's what it's called. I remember my summer working at a camp was one of the most fruitful, productive of my life, and I think it was in no small part because we were living by a communal rule. We woke at the same time. We spent time in the Word together. We ate around a table together. We spent time outside together. We worked towards a common goal. And it was in that that the Spirit enabled growth in us. It was really an Acts 2 shaped life. And again, they were very ordinary things that we were doing, but it was the kind of thing that gave the Spirit the room to produce that fruit in us. When we're talking about adopting a rule as a church, we want belonging at Cornerstone to not only be about affirming a series of doctrinal propositions in an abstract sense. We want it to be about more than just you signing a piece of paper that says, yes, I agree to the Athanasian Creed. We want it to be about your life being lived in a way that we believe will produce greater conformity with Christ, meaning greater joy for you. So what is Cornerstone's rule of life? Let's talk about it. And I just want to point out really briefly, all of these are on the website. We go into a little bit greater detail there. I would encourage you, if you're considering membership, read the full description on the website. But let me just read these for us. The first aspect of our rule says, we do all in our power to worship weekly and earnestly with the church. The second We do our part to cultivate a rich network of spiritual friendships. Third, we faithfully and joyfully serve the church in some way at least once a month. Fourth, we give to the Lord through the church in a way that is generous, voluntary, and in keeping with our income. And then last, we seize opportunities to enact the renewal of all things locally and globally. So you may be reading those and thinking, wait a second, I already do those. (laughs) I imagine for many of us, if Cornerstone is your home church, nothing I shared with you is super surprising. And that is by design. The rule of life is not an opportunity for me to like really drive it home to you and say, now we're going to ratchet up your discipleship to be meaningful. It's an opportunity for us to all get on the same page about what are the means and mechanisms by which God works in our life. So I have chronic back issues And I realized by sharing this, I will get at least five recommendations for chiropractors and PTs after the sermon. That's okay, I'm willing to accept that. But I just started going to a new physical therapist, and this physical therapist has had me doing a series of exercises on underdeveloped muscles in my back. And I'm getting in these really specific postures. I'm trying to isolate specific muscles so that I can't cheat, so I can't involve a bunch of other muscles around and I can really say, oh, that's the muscle I'm supposed to be engaging whenever I'm doing this motion. Wasn't really thinking about it in that way. And what we're doing in making explicit a rule of life here at Cornerstone is not far off from what I'm doing in physical therapy. We're making explicit, these are the spiritual muscles that we ought to be exercising in our life as a disciple. And it may be subtle, but it will produce a change in us. It may be the difference from saying, yeah, I go to church on Sundays when I can, to I do all in my power to worship weekly and earnestly with the church. Both of those may have you at church on a Sunday. They are two very different ways of showing up. So what we are doing in establishing an explicit rule is we are saying, let's attune ourselves to these spiritual practices, 
Let's take them seriously. Let's not be inoculized to them and just say, yeah, these are the things that we do because it's a church. No, these are the means by which the Spirit will be enabled to bear fruit in our lives. Some of us may be thinking in response to this, yeah, I do those, or most of them, when I can. And I want to encourage us to approach rule of life not as a buffet where it's, okay, I'm going to draw on just these ones because I like them, but instead to think about it as a balanced trellis, that each piece is adding to an overall picture of the disciples that we are becoming. Because all of us have means, or rather, all of us have needs of formation. We all have ways in which we need to be formed, and all of us have places where we'd rather kind of not undertake that aspect of our formation. Probably in reading that list, you're good for like three or four of the five, but there's one where you're thinking to yourself like, nah, I'm probably not going to do that one. Like, I'll go to church, but I'm not going to serve on a monthly basis. Or I will give, but I'm not going to do the renewal projects. Or sure, I'll be here every Sunday, but I'm not going to do all in my power to cultivate a community of spiritual friendships because I've got friends elsewhere. There's probably a place where we are willing to relax it for ourselves. And I just want to walk through each one of these aspects of our rule briefly to give you a little snapshot of what will this produce in you if you engage in it. When we're talking about worshiping weekly and earnestly with the church, what you're committing to is in bodily presence, being nourished by the preaching of the word, by the receiving of the communion meal, by praise with your brothers and sisters and by the prayers of the people. When you're committing to cultivate a rich network of spiritual friendships, you're inviting people to encourage you to live the life that God is calling you to live and you're pledging to help others as they pursue the same thing. When you say you're going to faithfully and joyfully serve the church monthly, You're saying, I want to offer my time, my gifts, my talents in a way that says, yes, I believe God does work through these ordinary spaces, which this is a place that's maybe worth pausing on and just saying, especially for those of you who serve in Cornerstone Kids, but really those of you who serve anywhere, the work that you're doing in the life of the church, it may feel ordinary and it may feel slow, but you are helping to make disciples by God's grace as you serve in these places. Thank you for what you're doing. When we talk about giving to the Lord, that we will do this faithfully and in keeping with our income, we are saying that we are going to defy one of the greatest idols of our culture, that through our material possessions we can somehow experience fulfillment, and you're saying, no, I'm going to reject that way of thinking. When we talk about enacting the renewal of all things, we're partnering with God to bring about the work that his creation ultimately will be renewed through Jesus. And I hope that in just running through those, you could do a sermon about each one of those aspects of our rule. You can see that is a key, a critical part of how a disciple is formed. And to leave any one of those behind would be incomplete formation for any one of us. It would be serious to neglect any one of those practices. And I'm reminded of Eugene Peterson when he was writing about the office of pastor. He kind of reimagines this excerpt from Homer's the Odyssey. So he's thinking about when Odysseus is sailing past the sirens, these mytholo- mythological creatures who lured sailors to their death by this song. 
and he wants to be able to hear the siren song without succumbing to the temptation, and so he has his crewmen lash him to the mast. He says, I want to be able to hear this, but I know I'm going to want to go to the rocks, and so tie me to this thing. And what we're doing in a rule of life is in an acknowledgement of saying, yeah, right now, in this space, objectively, I do agree, all five of those are important for my discipleship, but I know in a couple weeks, I'm going to be saying like, yeah, I'm not going to do that one. What we're doing in committing to a rule is we're saying, tie me to the mast. Make sure that I don't deviate whenever the voices of my own sin or the voices of the world begin to say to me, you don't need to do that one. That's not that big of a deal for you. No, it is. And so I want to be tied here. Taking on a rule of life is to say, I believe that this is the direction I want to go in. I need help towards that. Now, in hearing these things, you may be still a little bit skeptical. Maybe you're skeptical because you're thinking to yourself, if this is Cornerstone's way of producing change in me, of seeing formation in me, I don't believe it will work because I've been doing these things for years and I feel like it hasn't worked. Which, fair enough, in that these are not five magic steps to a perfect you. And by doing all five of them, you're not suddenly going to find yourself fully complete in Christ. But I would push back on that if you're somebody in the room who's thinking, these won't produce change in me. Part of my pushback would be to say what I was just saying, that, yeah, maybe you've done some of these things over time, but have you done them in an intentional way where you're engaging those spiritual muscles in the sense of saying, it's not just that I happen to be at church today, it's that I'm choosing to worship in a specific way. That would be one thing I would say. But another thing, I'm reminded of a buddy of mine who, he was in a round of therapy, and he was expressing to his therapist a lot of frustration with the slowness of his spiritual growth, which is something that I can resonate with. And as he was processing with this therapist, saying this sanctification feels slow, his therapist asked him a question which became kind of an aha moment for him. So the therapist asked back to him, okay, so I'm hearing you say that you're frustrated that this isn't producing the change that you want it to. What do you think your life would look like if you weren't doing these spiritual practices? And it was kind of this moment of, wow, I don't want to know what my life would look like if I weren't doing these spiritual practices. Maybe I'm not bearing the fruit that I want to be bearing right now, but to be attached to a trellis, to be tied to the masses, it is keeping me upright in a season when I am not yet bearing fruit. And so there's an aspect of committing ourselves to a rule of life and membership, which is to say, I want to be held upright even in the seasons between producing, even when I'm just growing imperceptibly. I recognize that I need to be held here. Now, one big old caveat on all of this rule of life stuff is the rule of life that we've just shared at a communal level, this is as one size fits all as we could make it. These are the pieces of our rule where I can in confidence say, hey, no matter who you are in this room, if you're at Cornerstone, these would be good things for you to participate in. But I know for each and every one of us, we have more things that we individually need that may not be a one-size-fits-all. Maybe not everyone in this room needs to adopt a 10 p.m. screen bedtime, although I bet it wouldn't hurt anybody either. But that's the kind of thing I don't feel confident or comfortable enough to tell all of you, hey, do this. That starts to feel a little legalistic. I want to invite all of us to think about applying a personal rule for ourselves. 
what would it look like for you, in addition to this communal rule, to say, I want to shape my life in a certain way. I want to take on a series of habits and rhythms. And if you're a type A person in the room, I have good news for you. I have a template for creating a personal rule of life. I will share it with you via email. It's great. But maybe that's a little bit intense. So what I would encourage you to do is to think, is there one thing that I can begin doing and one thing that I can stop doing that would encourage my life in God, that would create an environment where the Spirit can work organically in me? And maybe the way that you could go about this is to attune yourself to the seasons of the church calendar. Right now we're in the season of Epiphany, a season where we're remembering that the gospel goes out to every tribe, tongue, and nation? What if you took on a practice during the season of Epiphany that said, I want to spend time around people who I otherwise would not spend time around. I want to cultivate friendships outside of my ethnicity or my socioeconomic group or whatever it may be. Or the next season of the church calendar we'll get to is Lent. What if I took on a Lenten fast? What if I abstained from something for this season? Which, in saying that, I'm reminded of, you may remember when Esau McCulley preached for us on the first Sunday of Lent last year. And there's this phrase that he used that's been stuck in my head ever since. He talked about hacking our sanctification. By which what he meant was, hey, when it's Lent, don't just give up chocolate so you can say you gave something up. Conduct an inventory of your heart and think, what would be the one thing I could do that would produce the most outsized change in my discipleship, and then do that thing? For some of us in the room, I bet you have already identified what that one thing would be. For others of us in the room, if you'd be so bold, maybe what you could do is go ask your community, hey, what should I do? Hey, apprentice group, what would be a meaningful way for me to shape my habits and rhythms? So I hope that you'll consider taking on that personal practice. Cornerstone, in all of this, what we are doing in membership is we are inviting you into a way of practicing a shared faith and trusting ourselves to the patient, slow, kind, gracious work of the Spirit in bearing fruit in us. Not for the sake of legalism, but for the sake of encouragement. That there would be brothers and sisters walking alongside you, encouraging you towards these things, helping you remain tied to that mast of your own volition. And if I can encourage us in something I want you to leave this room hearing that you do not have to earn your salvation. You cannot earn something that has been freely given to you. But I also would encourage you, Jesus has made you a participant in the divine nature, and that means that you have something to steward, to add to, that by grace God might bear fruit in you. Pray with me. Father, I thank you so much that you have invited us into the divine life, that through your son Jesus, through his death and resurrection, his continuing ministry, through the power of the Spirit, you have invited us to participate in your life. And God, I pray for this community that as we begin membership, as we begin making more explicit the practices that we have already been engaging in, I pray that this would be an opportunity for people to experience new fruit in you. Not that we would be doing something extraordinary, not that people would look at us and marvel of, wow, look at how full their schedule is, but instead in the posture of Acts 2, that by embracing the ordinary, time around the table together, time here at church together, that we would begin to see you work, Holy Spirit. We are desperate for you to be the actor in our 
sanctification in our ongoing holiness. And so we cast ourselves upon your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.